This is made possible by Dustin Campbell, O Them Bones, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, and Craig. Welcome, everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics program for December 21st, 2022. Your old pal, Justin Robert Young, joining you from Austin, Texas. It's that ring, ring, ringling, jing, jing, jingling, too. Hanukkah in full force. Christmas on the horizon. The holidays are here, and I have a gift for you. Although, I guess it's like, you know, it's like a real kind of BS gift, right? Because I, I do this for you guys every week anyway. In fact, I, I'm I'm going to be, you know, dogging it because we're not going to have a new Friday episode this week. So this is like when, you know, you, 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 your family says, well, our, our gift to you is our love, which is nice. The older you get, the more you appreciate it. But, uh, you know. Xbox is better, I guess. Anyway, we do have a bunch of really, really interesting stories, which is a gift considering normally this time of year is dead as Dillinger news wise. We are going to talk about a wild story from the New York Times, specifically the tale of incoming representative George Santos, a man for whom has a resume that looks to be as worthwhile as the paper it is printed on. Uh, uh, A lot of questions for incoming Representative Santos, including if he went to the college he said he went to, if he worked at the investment banks that he said he worked at, where his family money came from, We'll get to all that. And while the metaphorical Santa's elves are working to get their deadline met by Christmas Eve, so are the critters of Congress doing their best to try to put together a wish list called government funding, an omnibus bill for the fiscal year 2023 has been circulated. By the time you listen to it, there might even be more movement on this, but it looks to be a $1.66 trillion behemoth, 4,155 pages long. We'll tell you what's in it in a second. Obviously, there's a lot of news that uh, came out also from Congress and uh, well, really just D.C. in general. Uh, And so we're going to cover that here up front. Obviously, very, very serious. Uh, And that obviously is a proposed Department of Energy rule, which would phase out the use of compact fluorescent light bulbs. Part of the Biden administration's effort to remove less energy efficient bulbs from the market. Current standards require light bulbs to be at least 45 lumens, the unit, the unit used to measure brightness per watt. Under the proposed update, first reported by CNN, the standard would be more than doubled to 120 lumens per watt. Commonplace 60 watt equivalent light bulbs would only require a maximum of 6.5 watts, according to an analysis by the Appliance Standards. Awareness Project. So, glad you guys have that big update. Oh, my Josh. And of course, it's the January 6th committee. They voted on Monday to recommend that the Justice Department pursue a batch of criminal charges against former President Donald Trump for his role to overturn the 2020 election and the fomenting of a deadly mob at the Capitol. Trump was the first president, and I don't know, I don't want to be Stickler Magoo here, deadly mob, I don't know if I were the editor, if I would say deadly mob, it makes sound like the mob killed somebody, there was nobody killed 
technically by the mob. Anyway, all right, uh, whatever. Editor brain turned off. Trump was the first president in American history to be impeached twice. Now he is also the first president to be formally referred to Congress for potential prosecution. The committee's final meeting was the culmination of a sweeping 17-month congressional investigation that included more than 100 subpoenas, interviews, and more than 1,200 witnesses, and the collection of hundreds of thousands of documents. So, the criminal referral is going to go for Trump and his lawyer, John Eastman. But not Mark Meadows, not Rudy Giuliani. And specifically... The committee is urging the Department of Justice to consider charges against Trump, including conspiracy to defraud the federal government. So that would be in the planning. Obviously, this is the idea that there would be a separate slate of electors and so on and so on. Obstruction of an official proceeding. This one I would find a little harder to say that it's obstruction if the mechanisms by which they were using to try to overturn the results of the election are still part of how we put everything together for the election. So I I don't know, but they felt that this was a criminal case. And this is the big one. Conspiracy to make a, oh wait, no, this isn't the big one. Conspiracy to make a false statement. I mean, all right. I'm not saying that Donald Trump told the truth at all times. I'm just saying that if conspiracy to make a false statement is something that we're going to criminally prosecute in Washington, then, uh, you know, fire up the Google Doc. This is the big one. Inciting or assisting those in an insurrection. I will leave it to the lawyers to see exactly what the burden of proof is on inciting or assisting those in an insurrection. But I, I find that this one would probably be particularly difficult to prosecute in a court of law. I've been critical of the January 6th committee, uh, largely because I think it was too myopically focused on Trump. I think that there were other elements involved in this process that don't have to do with Donald Trump's 2024 race for the presidency. I felt that this was specifically designed as a campaign apparatus to damage his future aspirations. And while I also feel that he's done enough to to damage his own future aspirations when it comes to his complicity in some of these antics, I don't feel that I know more about the whole, the 360 of what happened on January 6th. This was not the 9-11 commission. This was not in any way something that I think you could with a straight face say was a sober bipartisan look into it. Now, do I think that they unearthed in good information? Sure. I do think a fuller look into exactly what the cockamimi apple dumpling gang plan that uh, uh, Donald Trump and his and his team had to try and and put in their own electors is worthwhile. Is it the entire story? No. Is it a, a preamble to do this to make criminal referrals and whether or not the Department of Justice uh, uh, follows up on them? They can say, like they did in the lead of this article we just read, that Donald Trump is the first president to have yet another uh, a mark of shame hung upon him. Yeah, I think that that was it. So we'll see where we go from here. Uh, Jamie Raskin, Democrat Maryland, said, we understand the gravity of each and every referral we are making today, just as we understand the magnitude of the crime against democracy that we describe in our report. But we have gone where the facts of the law led us, and inescapably, they lead us here. And I lead you to the rest of our show. But first... Oh,
opponents are among those calling on Congressman-elect George Santos to resign before even taking office. It comes as Santos's team is responding to a bombshell report that accuses the Republican of lying about key parts of his resume, including his education and his work history. CBS Representative-elect George Santos was a fairly key winner in the 2022 midterms. A reminder that that cushion for a Republican majority was supposed to be larger and indeed could have been non-existent if it weren't for certain overperformances. New York State was one of those and a Biden district that wound up going red was won by George Santos, somebody that while campaigned against as an ultra MAGA candidate, indeed has some of those demographic sparkles that make you believe that there is a broadening coalition on the Republican side. He's gay. And for those keeping track, he is the first gay Republican to win as a non-incumbent. And yet his narrow election last month is now in question. This which we are going to read, <laughs> you know, fairly word for word from the New York Times because it deserves to be understood. Santos's campaign biography amplified his storybook journey. The son of a Brazilian immigrant, the first openly gay Republican to win a House seat as a non-incumbent. By his account, he catapulted himself from New York City Public College to become a, quote, Seasoned Wall Street financier and investor, end quote, with a family owned real estate portfolio of 13 properties and an animal rescue charity that saved more than 2,500 dogs and cats. But a New York Times review of public documents and court filings from the United States and Brazil, as well as various attempts to verify claims that Mr. Santos, 34, made on the campaign trail, call into question key parts of his resume that he sold to voters. Citigroup and Goldman Sachs, the marquee Wall Street firms on Mr. Santos's campaign biography, told the Times that they had no record of him ever working there. Officials at Baruch College, which Mr. Santos said he graduated from in 2010, could find no record of anyone matching his name and date of birth graduating that year. There was also little evidence that his animal rescue group, Friends of Pets United, was, as Mr. Santos claimed, a tax-exempt organization. The Internal Revenue Service could locate no record of a registered charity with that name. And his financial disclosure uh, suggests a life of some wealth. He lent his campaign more than $700,000 during the midterm election and has donated thousands of dollars to other candidates in the last two years and reported a $750,000 salary and an over $1 million in dividends from his company, the DeVolder Organization. And yet the firm which has no public website or LinkedIn page, is something of a mystery. On his campaign website, Mr. Santos once described DeVolder as a quote-unquote family firm that managed $80 million in assets. On his congressional financial disclosure, he described it as a capital introduction consulting company, a type of boutique firm that serves as a liaison between investment funds and deep-pocketed investors. But Mr. Santos's disclosure do not reveal any of his clients and omission there. Election law experts say could be problematic if such clients exist. This is bad, George. Uh, you don't want this. And there are a lot of questions that are now coming up, up to and including how much of a fraud is George Santos? Let's even follow down that road. If he is a fraud, what's anybody going to do about it? And let's follow it down even further. If he is a fraud, how the hell did this not come up during the gigantic election we just had? Well, let's start here. George Santos did respond to this article, at least through his attorney, Joseph Murray Esquire. We read again verbatim. George Santos represents the kind of progress that the left is so threatened by, a gay, Latino, first-generation American and Republican who won a Biden district in overwhelming fashion by showing everyday voters that there is a better option than the broken promises and failed policies of the Democratic Party. After four years in the public eye, 
and on the verge of being sworn in as a member of the Republican-led 118th Congress, the New York Times launches this shotgun blast of attacks. It is no surprise that Congressman-elect Santos has enemies at the New York Times who are attempting to smear his good name and these defamatory allegations. As Winston Churchill famously said, you have enemies, good. It means you've stood up for something sometime in your life. End the quote from Winston Churchill. (laughs) Okay, so we don't have any response to the Diddy work at Goldman Sachs. Diddy work at the other investment firm is his charity for real. And did he go to college where he says he went to college? Let's now swing over to Politico's playbook, covering exactly how the Democrats are going to look to handle him as he gets to his new job in Congress. Questions. Should he be referred to the House Ethics Committee? Almost certainly, Politico says. Should they call for his resignation before he's sworn in? Some Democrats, according to the reporting, say yes. Should they call for his expulsion after he's sworn in? Probably, but with the GOP in charge, it's going to be a futile exercise. Or should they prevent him from being sworn in at all? So one thing that's definitely not going to happen is that his opponent, Santos's opponent, vanquished in the election, is not going to ask for any kind of investigation into the election itself. While he says that Santos should be investigated past this, He isn't going to get into a, well, maybe he didn't really win the election situation. Good for him. However, the House rules allow for fellow members elect to object on the first day of the new Congress to prevent a potential colleague from taking the oath. And so maybe this will be a scenario where an incoming Freshman Congress person makes their first order of business to try to deny George Santos his role in the House. While it is still possible that some very, very excitable freshman will do such a thing, Democratic leadership is cool on the idea, again, saying that if it ain't going to work, then there might not be a reason to do it. But then the finger pointing goes back to about a month and a half ago. Hell, let's point it even further. The other year that every Democratic organization had an opportunity to blow the lid off this story before voters went to the polls. Why on earth did the Democratic Congressional Committee not have any kind of whiff that this dude had no bona fides from any of his resume, possibly his charity, and we have no idea whether or not his actual job, for which at the very least put $700,000 of his own money into his pocket, exactly exists. Oh, wait, one more thing that the New York Times also found out. That Santos, when he was living in Brazil, wrote fake checks and was prosecuted for it and admitted to it. This is obviously an unfolding story. It is one that we will keep an eye on as we come in to the beginning of next year and will almost assuredly be something to watch during the swearing-in ceremony on January 3rd along with whether or not Kevin McCarthy will become the Speaker of the House. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Yep, it is that time of the year. I hope everybody is having a good time. If you are with family and friends, then I hope you very much enjoy their company. If you are apart from those that you care about the most in this world, I know that money crunches, work obligations, military deployments oftentimes make the perfect holiday, something that is oh so rare. And so 
Considering podcasting is the most personal art form, then just allow me, your friend who lives, to whisper in your ears or keep you company when you are on the road to say Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Holidays to you. Thank you for your support of this show, be it to listen, be it to download, be it to rate, be it to review, be it to tell a friend. And of course, anybody who goes to TakePoliticsSeriously.com, signs up at the $3 level, gets the bonus episodes that will continue throughout the holiday season. Well, thank you as well. It always is something that warms my heart. And I greatly, greatly, greatly appreciate the fact that you guys care enough to care about this show. One more time. Merry Christmas to all, and to all, a great politics, politics, politics night. Thank you very much. TakePoliticsSeriously.com Busy, 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 busy. That's what Congress is right now because they have until Friday of this week to fund the government. And indeed, after feverish negotiation, House and Senate uh, negotiators released a $1.66 trillion fiscal year 2023 omnibus funding package on Monday night. We're going to rip through what is in here so you guys have. An idea. But before we do that, let's look at when this 4,155 page behemoth may indeed become the law of the land. Well, by the time that you listen to this, there already has been a provisional vote, and there are some back and forths on uh, one particular sticking point. We're going to get there in a second. But for right now, you would expect there to be movement on this if both parties have touched this bill. And it looks likely to go forward because both parties are talking about all the cool things they did with it. uh, Senators Patrick Leahy and Richard Shelby, the chair and ranking members of the Appropriations Committee who helped forge the deal. uh, Leahy was elected to the Senate in 1974. He gives his farewell address on Tuesday. Shelby gave his farewell address last week, meaning both of them are outgoing from the Senate. Republicans sought and received big increases in defense spending, totaling nearly 10%. Overall defense spending is $858 billion. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and his GOP colleagues pushed hard on this front and were eventually successful. There is $45 billion in military and economic aid for the war in Ukraine, which is billions of dollars higher than President Joe Biden asked for. That is a win for the White House and Ukraine backers on Capitol Hill, who overcame growing House GOP opposition. And you got to wonder whether or not this is something that might not happen quite as easy as the next Congress comes in. There is $38 billion in disaster aid for the package. Non-defense spending has risen as well, although at a slower rate than the Pentagon budget. Republicans wanted to end parity in increases for defense and social spending, and so that is a win for the Republicans. And yet Democrats have something that they can thank Santa for. Non-defense spending has reached $800 billion, a record amount, according to the Appropriations Committee. Chair Rosa DeLauro said that there is more than $5 billion worth of Democratic earmarks for 3,200-plus projects. That is funding that every House and Senate Democrat can go back to their home districts and say, look what I brought you. The National Institute of Health gets $47 billion. That is $2.5 billion more than they did before. There's more money for the Violence Against Women Act. That includes $4.4 billion in grants for state and local law enforcement, a half mil or sorry, $500 million boost from last year. Legislation also adds $1 billion for Puerto Rico's electrical grid, $600 million to address water problems in Jackson, Mississippi, and another $1 billion 
for low-income heating assistance. But one of the biggest increases in this package is the $21 billion boost, a boost for veterans' health care, nearly $119 billion. Congress passed that PACT Act this year to help veterans exposed to toxic substances during their military service. Burn pits, burn pits, burn pits, burn pits. This is that $21 billion to go on top of it for that. The Senate's version of the Electoral Count Reform Act is also in the omnibus. This was a deal made between Susan Collins and Joe Manchin that effectively is trying to shore up whatever theory there was that Mike Pence could nullify the election back in 2020. And one thing that is definitely a win, at least for one Josh Howley, is to ban the installation of TikTok on any government phone. If your phone has been issued by the government, TikTok is not allowed to be on there. That is if this omnibus passes. So we told you that there was one big sticking point, and it is this. Where the FBI's new headquarters is going to be. This has been a fight that has apparently gone on for around 10 years. And while there are strict reasons why the FBI headquarters should be anywhere, it has been narrowed down to three different locations Springfield, Virginia. Landover, Maryland, and Greenbelt, Maryland. Now, without knowing everything about the traffic patterns and natural migrations of the D.C. metro area, I can say this, that one of the criteria, uh, in fact, it is, according to the FBI, ever the numbers nerds, 35% of the decision, this is their real criteria, has to be whether or not it is close to Quantico, the training center for the FBI. All right? So you don't have to be a trained analyst to go to Google Maps and figure out that Springfield is closer than Landover and Greenbelt. And yet... The fight has been on for years and years and years from the Maryland delegation to make sure that that headquarters ends up in Maryland. Namely, House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer. He wants to get language in this omnibus to set all the categories equally giving Maryland a better shot at securing the facility. This has pitted him against Senator Mark Warner, who is advocating to stick with the guidelines. Furthermore, furthermore, prominent black leaders, Reverend Al Sharpton and the National Urban League President Mark Morial has sent a letter to the president of the organization that set up that 35% figure saying choosing one of the Maryland sites would help fulfill Joe Biden's commitment to equality and empowerment initiatives relative to empowering black voices. I would pay so much money just to see an AI recreation of Martin Luther King being told that the FBI's headquarters is a positive step forward to black voices and lives. <laughs> but that's where we are. That's what they're fighting about right now. I would expect that something like this is, you know, just some last minute wrangling and and we would probably see this brought to an end soon. But uh, uh, there we are. That's the state of the omnibus bill. It's probably further along by the time that you are hearing it, but that's what's in it. Let's see what passes. 
Our guest today needs no introduction. Whenever money is being sloshed around, we need to know what the hell is going on. He's the man to talk to. The one, the only, money man. Dave Leventhal, welcome back to the show, buddy. And it is good to be back on the show, Justin. So, uh, rarely do FEC (laughs) mentions in an indictment get quite the attention that they got over the last week. And it made you an an instant call to be on the show so we could make sense of it. Sam Bankman-Fried not only oversaw what uh, was called in Congress old school embezzlement in a new school business, the crypto exchange FTX, but he also used some of that, according to the new CEO, embezzled money to spread around D.C. So what do we know about Sam Bankman Freed's spending in D.C. and how is it being alleged that it was illegal? So let, let's start at the most foundational level here, because we, we've got a got a little bit of a building to uh, to build here. Uh, gotcha. So Sam, Sam Bankman Freed, uh, over the past couple of years, he, he had vaulted himself really into the upper echelon of the political power players here in the nation's capital. And well, how did he do that? Well, he bought his way into prominence. This was somebody who a few years ago. Nobody knew his name. He wasn't really in any DC circles. This was not somebody who was being mentioned in the same breath of, you know, say nothing of like the Koch brothers or George yeah. Soros or any of the other big, you know, extreme yeah. multi-million yeah. dollar money people. Uh, he wasn't being mentioned in any conversation. But that changed very, very quickly, and it changed because of his fortunes and his personal and then let, fortunes. And let me, let, me, let me also point out there, he also didn't come from the normal channels that you see these guys come from. Like, he wasn't a, a banking person in New York. He wasn't, you know, somebody's son in D.C. or something like that that had just been around for a while, and that's why the name pops up fast. He was from the West Coast, and, and uh, he had to, to pay retail to get into those rooms. Completely. And, you know, like many things in Washington, D.C., there is a price to be paid if you're going to get yourself inside the rooms. I mean, it's like if you want to go to the club, great. Everyone can go to the club. But if you want to get like bottle service and real, (laughs) you know, particular room or you you get bespoke service and all that. Well, yeah, that's going to cost a little bit more scratch. So if you B- want to bottle get- service for democracy is a great way yeah. to describe where, 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 where SBF found himself. And if anyone uses that as their band name, then, you know, just credit, <laughs> credit Justin and I here today. Yes. But yeah, you know, what is that in political terms? Well, it's getting inside those fundraisers where there's only 20 people and you're having a really nice dinner and you get to talk to the Senator for, you know, 10 minutes by yourself. It's, it's getting yourself a meeting on Capitol Hill with a lawmaker who may have a lot of power on a particular committee or in a particular context uh, on an issue that you really, really care about or or maybe shepherding a bill that is going to change the fortunes of your company or your industry. So we could go on and on, but I think you get the point that if you want to be a player, you got to pay to be a player. And Sam Bankman-Fried was paying some incredibly big dollar figures in order to be that very player that he became in very short order. What ballpark are we talking about in terms of what we know he spent on political contributions? We are talking tens upon tens of millions of dollars. And this is money that has gone to a variety of different types of political operations. So we're talking candidate committees. We're mm-hmm. talking party committees. We're also talking about super PACs and these groups that can raise and spend unlimited amounts of money and even, you know, state level political committees too. And, and you know, a notable one, seven figures, a million bucks went to Beto O'Rourke's Texas gubernatorial campaign. So this was an, an extreme amount of money in a very short period of time measured in the eight figures, 
and, and really coming up from what was virtually nothing, uh, again, not just long ago. We've heard a lot about the fact that this was a lopsided contribution slate that he mostly gave to Democrats. What do we know about that? And then the counter argument to it that his second in command was the one giving to Republicans. Well, there's a couple of things to unpack here. Uh, First of all, we know what we know. And what we know is that in terms of hard money contributions, and when you define hard money contributions, that's money that you can track. It's money that's going directly to a party committee or a candidate committee or a super PAC. Yes, he was giving more of that type of money to Democrats than Republicans, although federal records do very much indicate that he gave significant amounts of money, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars in aggregate to Republican entities. And, you know, that may seem weird, but it's actually not that uncommon, especially for business entities or business CEOs or executive types who want to play both sides and are not so much partisans or ideologues, but are very pro themselves and want to make sure that they got friends on both sides of the aisle. So this is a you know, something that we see a lot of. It is a business strategy that is tried and true. And even though we're talking about the crypto world here, the the tried and true playbook still applies and did apply in the case of Sam Bankman-Fried. But there is also another side to this, and it is, quote unquote, dark money contributions, money that may be being made to, for example, certain nonprofit organizations that by law, Thank you, Citizens United decision from 2010 at the Supreme Court level. You can make a contribution to a certain type of nonprofit. You want to get technical. They're called 501c4 or 501c6 (laughs) nonprofits. These are either social welfare organizations in the first case or business leagues. Think, you know, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce in the second. And these types of nonprofits can in turn themselves donate money that they receive from Sam Bankman-Fried or anyone else and contribute that money to a super PAC. Or they can spend that money for political purposes on their own. And we, you, me, anyone else listening today, will not know the root source of that contribution. Now, we know that Sam Bankman-Fried was engaging in dark money contributions because if you take him at his word, He publicly, well, not publicly, it's now made publicly, but he said to uh, on a podcast that that he was engaging in in this type of activity, which is legal at its face, but also to, you know, basically occludes the fact that he was playing both sides of the aisle. He was just, you know, donating to Democrats more publicly than he was donating to Republicans. If indeed through his dark money contributions, those were going to the Republican side, for which we don't know because we don't know where the money came from, right? We don't. And and that, I suspect, may be part of the investigation that uh, will be happening at the federal level into his activities. But at least at this point, we, we do have evidence that he was playing both sides of the aisle. He was giving Democrats more in terms of that transparent type of donations. And that, that could be, you know, it, and it seems uh, by his own words, something that he was doing on purpose because he, I paraphrase, would have been widely criticized in the media had he been given money, you know, if he was known to have been giving money to Republicans at a time when Donald Trump was flaming out and insurrections and all the other yeah. things going on. So, uh, yes, his colleagues also, too, were engaging in political donations Uh, not to the degree that he was, but also giving to Democrats and notably Republicans. So this was, uh, I I will say it again, this was a a strategy that seemed to be in place that was very, very much about putting crypto as an industry on the political map in a profound way and putting FTX, Sam Bankman-Fried's company, on the political map uh, in a way that really made it a leader in Washington, D.C., a force to be reckoned with, a company that could not be ignored at a time when Congress in particular was considering a whole host of different rules, laws, regulations that would have very much and will very much affect the crypto industry. And obviously now is uh, going to be in a whole new different light with the demise of FTX and the in the crypto industry and, and 
a, a very you know real level of chaos right now. So what did he want? What was he pushing? Do we know that? Well, there's two answers to that question. First is the personal. And from the personal level, he very much wanted, uh, just based on his actions and activity, to have a, a kind of stature that almost nobody in the crypto industry had in Washington, D.C. He wanted to be the man. He wanted to be the guy. He wanted to be the face of crypto in the most powerful city in America and arguably the world. And if he got that, that was going to allow him to, in essence, when you look at the long game, benefit his own bottom line, his company's bottom line, and, and really, you know, in any major discussion, put him not just in the room, but in the center of the room with any lawmaker who was making a decision. I mean, potentially all the way on up to the president of the United States, whether that's Joe Biden or the next one or the next one, uh -huh. definitely within the the halls of the regulatory agencies where some of the, the real and also behind the scenes work gets done. And when it comes to Biden, he was, if I uh, correct me if I'm wrong, the second largest single gift that was received to Biden 2020 came from SBF behind only you Bloomberg. Know. You know that that you you nailed it in the sense that uh, this was somebody in Sam Bankman Fried who was spreading money really far and wide at every level, all the way on up to the top. So, you know, Joe Biden didn't, of course, know about Sam Bankman Fried in 2020 in the way that he now does today. And uh, anytime there are, is somebody who gets crosswise with the law, you have politicians uh, doing everything oftentimes that they can to run away from an association with a person who's in trouble. But it that just underscores, uh, you know, really how Sam Bankman fried was operating and trying to ensure that he was going to be in any conversation all the way on up to the top. Because that's the kind of list. If you want to be the dude and you want to be known as the dude, that is a list for which we'll turn heads. If if it's Michael Bloomberg, then you, the guy that nobody knew his name uh, up till 11 seconds ago, that that will and, be and something that gets attention. It it will get attention. And, you know, the money in politics game in Washington, that this is not something where longevity or seniority or, you know, hey, he's the guy who's been given money for 30, 40 years, you know, no one he, cares. He's, he's, he's going to be better than anyone else. No, if you've been given money for two seconds, but you're giving millions and millions of dollars, then you can almost automatically vault above everyone else because the money talks. That's all that really matters. And Washington is a place where when we are constantly saying, oh, this is the most expensive election that's ever been staged in U.S. history. And, and then, you know, the next election's like, oh, well, you know, these five new Senate elections have superseded the ones from two years ago. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, that just goes to show that there is such an insatiable appetite for fundraising, that these elections get ever, ever more expensive, that sort of the, the mutually assured destruction nature of this uh, is very real. And candidates know that if they aren't competitive with their counterpart in an, an electoral context when it comes to finances, that they are putting themselves at a profound disadvantage. I mean, just imagine if Raphael Warnock, for example, said, hey, you know, I'm already a senator. I don't have to worry about this Herschel Walker guy. I'm not going to fundraise real hard. I, I don't need yeah. to do that. We might be having a very different conversation about what happened in Georgia during that runoff election if he didn't have a competitive or, in his case, a, a significant advantage over Herschel Walker by the massive fundraising that not only Raphael Warnock's campaign did, but all the different sorts of party committees and super PACs and nonprofits did uh, on his behalf to put him over the goal line in a highly competitive race. So th that's just, you know, a real-time example of what we see time and time again, which leads back to Sam Bankman-Fried, when you got a guy who's basically, you know, saying, hey, I'm the new piggy bank here. Well, yeah. nobody cares that there are, are other old piggy banks. I mean, they're so important too, but Sam Bankman-Fried is now the new shiny object and the new shiny object isn't, you know, just glittering. It's actually gold and you want it uh, or, you know, cryptocurrency as it were.
let, let's take a real quick side quest here because we I do want to talk to you about the indictment specifically and what was illegal in terms of what he did going forward. But I also want to ask you about this because we live in a very fractured media landscape. It has been easier than ever over the past 10 years for new media outlets that are based on talent that has come from other platforms that spin themselves up or fledgling platforms that continue to need money to make sure that they output high quality content. And SBF found welcome hands there as well. Among some of the names, the the new Semaphore outlet was heavily funded by SBF. And one of your former uh, outlets, ProPublica, today announcing that they were going to give back a large donation that SBF gave them. Uh, how much do we know he put into journalism as well as politics? Well, full disclosure, I, I never actually was uh, an employee of ProPublica, but have worked closely with them in previous okay. jobs. Okay. Too. So, but uh, you know, worked for the Center for Public Integrity, for example, a nonprofit organization, uh, news investigative uh, organization that. I, I don't you, know. You, you uh, publish, publish through ProPublica. There we go. <laughs> absolutely. And so, you know, but the point is, is that, yes, he was absolutely playing in other spaces as well that were politics adjacent, uh, either writing about politics, covering politics, were uh, aligned with political entities, uh, working with political entities, working against political entities too. So the media, we don't know because many of the media organizations that he may or may not have given to, they don't necessarily give a complete and full accounting of who has donated to them. Many do, but many also may have said, ah, oh, well, you know, Joe Smith has given money to our organization this past year, but won't attach a dollar figure to it. So the bottom line there is that there's no comprehensive way to know exactly how much money he has, number one, donated, for example, to nonprofit news organizations, or for that matter, how much he has put in as an investor into for-profit media. Yeah. So we we may end up learning a lot more about that uh, as the federal investigation goes along and information gets released as part of the government's investigation. And they, of course, have you know things like subpoena power and the ability to compel people to give information that we're not going to find in uh, in public documents or something that's obtained through a FOIA request, et cetera. But there's also another side to this as well. Uh, there, there are multiple, multiple sides to, to this yeah. dodecahedron of, you know, Sam Bankman-Friedman. <laughs> but the, uh, the nonprofit world outside the media has also been a uh, repository of, of his money, one in particular that we wrote about uh, earlier on this month is the Campaign Legal Center, which may not be a household name, but is an incredibly important nonprofit ethics watchdog organization here in Washington, D.C. that has been a major thorn in the side, for example, of Donald Trump, does a whole lot of work in the money and politics sphere and has filed complaints and lawsuits and, and a whole variety of uh, illegal initiatives against who they consider to be bad actors. And we confirmed with them that they had received $2.5 million from Sam nice. Bankman-Fried since 2021. Not a small chunk of change there. And, and we asked them, uh, and this was before we knew that uh, he had been engaged in campaign finance activity that the government is now alleging was illegal. And we said, well, what are you going to do with this money? Because we know this guy has been engaged in some highly controversial stuff at minimum. And at that point, earlier this month, they said, we're not going to do anything with it. We have already spent that money and uh, we have no comment on what we would do in the future if we got money from Sam Bankman-Fried. Well, flash forward, fast forward a week. Uh, just a couple days ago, and we now get news that Sam Bankman-Fried has been, as part of his indictment, um, charged with campaign finance violations. Well, the Campaign Legal Center, they changed their tune. Uh, they made a different decision and changed their mind and now have more or less sequestered $2.5 million of money that they have in reserve in their organization and said, we are 
putting that aside, uh, and we are going to wait to see what the courts ultimately do in regards to this until we determine for ourselves what we are going to do with this $2.5 million uh, worth of money. So as a long way around to get to the point of there have been dozens and dozens and dozens of conversations by political groups and political committees and candidates and nonprofit mm -hmm. news organizations and nonprofits who deal with politics and so on and so forth uh, about what they're going to do with this money. And the answer for many has been, we're going to run away from it and get rid of it as quickly as we possibly can. Others are still trying to answer that question for themselves. And it appears as if the, at least for some of the candidates that I've read about, the answer is just to donate whatever you got to a local charity. That, that this is kind of like a, like a, like a, like a Catholic indulgence. You know, you just have to spend some money and say, whoopsie, let's move on. Yes. And, uh, you know, Sister Mary Catherine and, uh, you know, uh, the, the good fathers uh, down at the friary, I'm, I'm sure are going to be very happy about that. But even that is controversial too, because, you know, I, if you're a charity and you know that you're getting Sam Bankman freed money, I mean, you're probably not going to say no to it, but at the same time too, you know, you, you don't want to be tarred yourself. So there's a certain dance that, that must be done, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, this is uh this is the kind of money where uh, you are having lots of organizations that for themselves are making the decision that it is much more worth it for them reputationally and otherwise to get rid of the money than to hang on to that cash to run their operations as they see fit. I will say that for anybody who is looking to unload the morally toxic money given to you by Sam Bankman Freed, I'll read my Venmo at the end of the show. So please go ahead. I will do you a service of taking it off your hands. And I guarantee you here and before God that I will spend it extraordinarily frivolously. Let, let, let's get into the, the legal element here, Dave. Everything that you've described to me in terms of him giving to various different outlets, candidates, PACs, parties, is legal. We talk about that on this show whenever we have you on every single time. So why is this illegal? Yeah, and uh, I, we've, we've kind of bandied about this phrase before that the scandal usually is not what is illegal, but the scandal with money in politics is what, what is legal, what, what's allowed to happen. The, the ways that money can be used as a tool or a weapon in politics in unsavory uh, ways that, uh, at least as far as the body politic is concerned, should be outlawed, but isn't. But this is not what's going on here. With Sam Bankman-Fried, the allegations that are coming down from the federal government is that he was doing something patently illegal and that there is a long, long history of the federal government prosecuting, which is making contributions in the name or the identity of somebody else. This can be referred to several ways. One common way to refer to it is a straw donor donation, where in essence, you're putting up somebody who isn't you as the, the face and the embodiment of that donation, but really you are you know, pulling the strings, uh, the, the straw man is out there and you're behind him and nobody can see you, but can see the straw man. So. This is uh, kind of at the crux of the accusation allegation that's coming down from the federal government. Of course, there are a lot of details that we don't know about exactly how that played out in reality, but it is a significant enough portion of this overall charge from the government, which involves a whole variety of other things too. We're just talking about the campaign finance slice here. Yes. But one that is notable enough for many politicians and political committees to kind of just, you know, freak the F out over being associated with somebody who might have been engaged and is now at the government level being accused of engaging in illegal campaign finance uh, activity. They want no part of that. So this is not because the money was ill-gotten. This is not because the government alleges that this was out-and-out out embezzlement from the customers of FTX, but rather the procedure by which he donated to these candidates and campaigns? Yeah, no, there, there's likely going to be other aspects to it. And if ultimately, you know, without... I, I, there are lots of different ways that you can slice this apple here. But if the funds that were being used to make political donations were basically funds that were determined to be illegally obtained or mm -hmm. through a process 
or fraud or whatever the case may be, then that absolutely is a point of peril that would have a direct relation to campaign finance as well. But, you know, we're just we're just learning exactly, you know, where this might be going. And I, I don't think at this juncture today on, you know, in late December that that we're fully going to know where this is all going to go. And and there might be a whole lot, Justin, to learn when it comes to his politicking, where he was putting his money, particularly uh, to refer back to what we were talking about earlier, when it comes to the dark money contributions that he made. There may be a whole universe and world of millions, even tens of millions of dollars of money that we just simply don't know about at this point that did absolutely go directly into the political bloodstream in this past midterm election in the 2020 election. And, and that's going to be information that right now is uh, not typically obtainable for mere mortals such as you and me, mm-hmm. but would be very much attainable uh, from the level of federal prosecutors. And so we could probably expect that through these prosecutions, unless you know there's some kind of guilty plea or a plea deal or something like that, but if, if this is presented as public evidence against him, then we're going to get a pretty stark look at what the life and spending patterns of a mega donor looks like, huh? Yeah. Uh, if if you want to take this to its extent, I mean, we may, and this is no promise here because these things take on a life of their own, but we may get as good a look as we've ever gotten, at least in the post-Citizens United world of politicking and money and politics, may get the best look that we've had at the internal operations, deliberations, thought processes of a mega donor. And why is that important? Well, it will show you not just what the mega donor is trying to do, but what politicians and political entities are also doing. I mean, think back to like the Clinton email leaks from 2016. Mm-hmm. And when you had all of these conversations going on back and forth between top political principles and various political influencers and how much we learned about the proverbial sausage making of politics through that. We're talking about a different situation there, but the parallel I think holds true that we very much could see, you know, truly inside the guts of what was a rapidly expanding piece of political machinery that Sam Bankman-Fried had built for himself here in Washington, D.C., using all of the money that he was making from an enterprise that the federal government is now saying was more or less a criminal enterprise. Well, there is a gigantic set of lessons that uh, we will hopefully have more illumination on in the coming year as we turn the page into 2023 and we will always on this show be uh, uh, able to ask one of our favorites uh, on on this subject and many others. Dave Leventhal, our our money man. Of course, everybody read his work in Insider. Uh, 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 please, sir, ha- have a have a happy holiday. Merry Christmas, happy holidays, happy New Year uh, to you, to yours. And to all of your listeners. And by the way, to your Buffalo Bills, I, I, I got to say, I'm not a Dolphins fan, but I grew up in South Florida and I've always loved, there's a few just football rivalries that I don't have any allegiance to that I just love because it was a, a nostalgic part of my childhood and good competitive Buffalo Bills, Miami Dolphins games. The one that happens at the beginning of the year when the Bills are too hot and the one that happens at the end of the year where the Dolphins are too cold. I just have very fond memories of, and so rarely uh, are they good uh, until the most recent few years. But that Saturday game, what, what, what magic. That was amazing. I mean, if, if we played every game in Miami in September and, and they had their heat advantage and we played every game in Buffalo against Miami in December, when there was a blizzard about to hit, uh, I, I would have, you know, half the things I want in life. And and growing up, you know, going to Bills games physically, sitting in section 127 in then Rich Stadium during uh, the Kelly Marino years and and watching some of those classic games. uh, Yes, I think for for any Buffalonian, we're we're feeling like uh, this is uh, this is the golden age again uh, of of that rivalry. And, you know, at least this last game, uh, we were 
we, we were on the right side of, uh, you know, fate and, and hope and love. And, and just uh, cinematic in, in how the, 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 the snow slowly came in and then kind of like crescendoed toward the end of the game. Just just amazing. If you didn't watch it, it's worth going on to YouTube and checking the highlights, even if you're not into football. It was it was just uh, just just great. There was the one moment toward the end when the announcers and they were on NFL Network, so they had to do less commercials, which I think also added to the presentation because they're they're waiting through a timeout. And the announcers are wise enough just to shut up as the crowd sang Let It Snow, which was coming over the PA system. And it was just like, oh, this is this is the holidays. Like, I just, I just wanted to, you know, uh, put, put some uh, uh, eggnog uh, in my in my cup and, and a Santa hat on. It was just amazing. Well, about 71,000 people there uh, in the stadium got a got a very nice uh, early present. And, uh, you know, hey, go Bills. There we go. Thank you very much, Dave. Thank you. With Let It Snow, here comes the chorus. <laughs> well done. And on key. Nice. And that'll wrap it up for us today. Politics, 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 written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young, for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. One last thing out the door. Axios reporting that after raising more than $100 million for her second bid to be Georgia governor, the Stacey Abrams campaign owes more than $1 million in debt to vendors. That according to two-time campaign manager Lauren Grow Wargo, who confirmed the figure to Axios. Wow. That article, by the way, says that uh, of the four major campaigns that were running in the midterms, the Republican and Democratic challengers for governor and the Republican and Democratic challengers for Senate. So Brian Kemp, Stacey Abrams, Raphael Warnock, and Herschel Walker. Three of them are doing apparently what is industry practice for a gigantic big money campaign and guaranteeing that their staff will be paid through the end of the year. One of them ain't, and it's Stacey Abrams. And that's why they are making sure that they let everybody know that, uh, hey, Merry Christmas, but uh, you're not going to get any more money. We are a million dollars in debt. Look at that. If you'd like to thank Dave Leventhal for coming on the program, it is px3guest.com. You want to email the program, easy place to do it, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter, px3tweets. You can see me live on the internet uh, during the morning hours. I usually go on around 8.30, stay on until around 10.30 central, so adjust that to whatever time zone you're in, px3live.com. Share this podcast with your friends, family, and clergy, px3podcast.com. If you would like to support this program, again, I'm, I'm going to say like I said during the interview with, uh, with Dave, if you got money from Sam Bankman-Fried for your organization or your campaign and you find it morally dubious and toxic and it is rotting your soul, well, call me the garbage man. Cause I'll take it off your hands and you, and, and I'm going to spend it very frivolously. Like I'm going to buy a bunch of Kit Kat bars. I'm going to, I'm, I'm just going to get on a plane and just fly to an airport and just fly back. Like I'm going to spend it in really dumb ways, but you got to give it to me first. PayPal.me slash pay jury, P A Y J U R Y. If it's Venmo, Venmo money isn't even real. So if you put SPF's money into Venmo, you've already done yourself a great favor, but then go ahead and send it to your boy, Justin-Young-20. Cash app is PX3Cash. And of course, you can send anything that you would like into our P.O. Box. P.O. Box 153184, Austin, Texas, 78715. Make sure you fill out anything that you send to that P.O. Box to Justin Young. I know some people send it to PX3 or whatever. They get fussy over there when my name's not on it. So please make sure you send it 
to Justin Young. P.O. Box 153184, Austin, Texas, 78715. Of course, the only way that you can get our bonus content is at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Our $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week covering all the news that we miss on our free podcast schedule. And our $10 tier gets your name read at the end of the show like these fine folks in the Titanic. $10 tier. Dustin, Jason, Andres, Sea Garcia, Matt, Craig, Potts, MC, Dradio, Unsafety, B-Levels, Katie, Amanda, Yeo, Pinball Shop, DP4, Bongo, Catherine, Todd, persons familiar with the matter, invoke Gloria Young, for King of the New World Order, Edison, up, 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 down, down, left, right, left, right, B, A, select, start, Dr. G, Neil, Charles, Darren, 100 Mile Runner, Idris Arslandi in Blue Front, and the Lenina, DL, Stephen, Chad, Nomadic Terran, Diana's turn to Miranda, Janelle, Adam, Chief, Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul is awesome. Brad, Richard, just another pilot, middle-aged Mike, who loves Frank, got abducted, Utah, Jimmy, Montana, duck, or sorry, the Jen, A-L-D-L-D-L-D, really chopper, Andrew and Joshua, if you would like to join their ranks in the, in the, in, in the coming year, the beginning of the chase to the White House, well, only one place to do it. Head on over. TakePoliticsSeriously.com We're not going to have a normal Friday show this week. Uh, The Thursday show uh, will exist. So will the um, some version, a Christmas version of our Sunday podcast. But we will... uh, we will not have a regular Friday show. I'm still unsure of what we're going to do. I'm going to throw something in the feed for you guys. But, uh, yeah, enjoy the holiday. Please, please have a good weekend. Till next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying. Some shows talk about politics. Others talk about politics and still more discuss politics. But this, this is the only show that dares talk about Oh, three. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. (laughs) Dog and Pony Show Audio.